Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're joined by Traffigur's Chief Economist, Saad Rahim, to get an update on the state of the commodity markets today and over the next 12 to 24 months. What are the key trends influencing prices and trade flows from returning Chinese demand, sanctions, interest rates, OPEC and the energy transition? And have the commodity markets fundamentally changed in a deglobalizing world, striving for low carbon energy? As always, if you enjoy the episode, please do leave us a positive review on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the show. Saad, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. So looking forward to this discussion, we're going to have quite a, a far ranging one on the sort of the state of the macro commodity picture as it stands today. And then what are sort of the milestones and events we should all be looking out for as we look forward in understanding where prices and supply chains might go. So so let's start in kind of the macro picture in, in Q2 when we're recording this 2023. Perhaps we can start with China coming out of of COVID, rapidly sloughing off the lockdowns late last year. What has that done to commodity demand, given that 10 years ago, China was the entire story of commodities, right? Where, where, where do we stand today? Well, I think what we're seeing in China is probably a bit of a two-speed recovery in the sense of we're seeing services in particular really come back very, very strongly. And you can see that in the numbers around people going out, traveling, you know, catering, things like that. So domestic travel in particular has really rebounded very strongly. So your levels, uh, whether it's road, rail, air, uh, subway even, you know, those, those are back above, well above in some cases, 2019 levels. International air travel is not there yet, but is recovering rapidly, at least of this recording. We've gone from basically zero up to about 35% here in April of 2023. And we think that has a potential to rise to probably about 50% of where it was in 2019 by the uh, Golden Week holiday that happens in, in early May. Part of what's, I think, holding that back a little bit is really the capacity additions. And you know this is something we saw globally as well when we saw other areas come back out of COVID lockdowns was just the inability sometimes to be able to handle that rush uh, for people wanting to, to travel, whether it was adding, you know, flight routes back, whether it was adding staff, you know, even things like baggage handlers, whatever else it may be. You know, so that's been a bit of a, a capacity bottleneck. You know, we've seen that with, for example, British Airways, you know, just added in March its direct uh, London Heathrow to Shanghai flight and is just, I think, adding this week maybe its London to Beijing direct flight. So as those things progress, we expect you know oil demand to continue to recover quite well. What we have not seen perhaps quite as strongly as maybe we were hoping for is, is really the rebound in the kind of the housing sector uh, and related metals demand. We are drawing inventories and we are drawing them earlier than normal from a lower level, from a much lower level than normal, I should say, and at a fairly rapid pace. But I think there was an expectation that perhaps we would come out and, and sort of be on all, all cylinders firing uh, and seeing a very strong housing recovery, very strong infrastructure, everything else. I would say that we're seeing a decent recovery, but perhaps just falling shy of, I think, where, where people were hoping for. Now, I think on that front, what we have seen is that the government has obviously prioritized a recovery in growth this year, and as such has has pumped a lot of credit into the system. Uh, you know, we just had the latest numbers come out with extraordinarily strong total social financing, well above expectations, well above previous levels. A lot of that is filtering down into local governments. But Unusually, I think for China's recoveries, this time it's not really about the supply of credit. It's really around the demand for credit, right? And that comes back to a little bit to, I think, confidence in what, what people are doing. And if what we look at it is really on housing, has been the recovery has been led in particular by the secondary, so sort of existing home sales, which is unusual for China. 
you know, there were, it's a lot of it is a new build, new projects, but partly because of the issues that the developers had, partly because of this issue around people were paying mortgages without getting the property. We've seen a very strong recovery. Uh, in fact, I think historically strong in the secondary sector, which is just now starting to spill over onto the primary as well. And I think the question is now, does that continue? Does that persist in order to be able to see kind of the really strong impact on, on metals? I sort of see the consumption-led growth, you know, as they come out of lockdown, talking about the energy demand that picks up and, and food as well. But staying just on that, um, on the investment side and, and China's economy is remarkable on the global level in how much of its GDP is driven by investment. And you saw sort of the the starts of what looked like a bit of a, a real estate collapse, um, you know, people not buying these third homes and so forth. I mean, I guess the two questions I have is, do you think they still have the same capacity for investment-led growth if things start to slow down and they want to hit their 5% target? Do we have any sense of whether there's confidence truly returning to you know the, the real estate market? Has that been the primary source of investment? I think generally most people are confident. I think we're confident that they will hit their 5% target this year, mainly because last year was so weak. I think a question we have had, though, is what is the composition of that growth look like a little bit? And that's something I was alluding to in this two-speed recovery, because I think from where we see it was last year, especially in the second half, but even overall for the year, metals demand in China actually was not that bad. But because the property sector was particularly poor, I think a lot of observers and analysts then naturally assumed that therefore that must have meant that metals demand in China is weak. Sort of my shorthand for this, you know, people from the outside looking in sort of go copper equals China, China equals property. Therefore, if China property is weak, copper demand and everything else has to be weak. And you're going, well, actually, we had record levels of copper, aluminium, stainless steel, you know, other forms of steel demand in China last year. And again, you know, hitting the all time highs sort of in August, September in particular. And we saw that showing up in the inventory draws. You know, we drew inventory steadily over the course of the year. And yet it seems very hard to get people to, in a sense, believe that that is what happened. So for a lot of people, I think their assumption is that metals demand in China was very weak last year. Then obviously this year they'll have a very large makeup number, if you will. For us, we're saying, look, we're starting from probably a higher base than most people. So we don't think maybe the, the delta, the increment is that strong. But having said that, you know, they are investing a lot across all the, you know, different areas. So it's not just real estate that's investment. So it is also in infrastructure. It is in manufacturing capacity, um, you know, what they're doing in terms of renewables uh, and, and everything else. So there is room, at least in the short term, for I think them to, to be able to turn that up uh, on the investment side if they need to. I think what they are trying to do, though, is create a more distributed model of growth, which they have been trying for some time, but I think in particular the focus now is really turning to that. In a sense, because the primary mechanism of, of distribution of income and wealth really, or wealth generation has been the real estate sector, it hasn't been income growth. So really then saying, well, how do we focus on more value-added services, more consumption-driven growth, more widespread income growth, rather than just fueling it via, via real estate? and so for commodities, that may be a little bit less commodity intensive, but allows for a more sustainable, more wider spread growth over, over time. And part of that has to do with demographics and, and a few other things as well, which we can discuss. But I think that's that's what we're looking at. So as they transition to that, I think it will be a little bit different. But for this year, we're expecting still very decent, strong uh, commodity growth. Just final question on China. I know mm -hmm. we'll return to it later on. We look at sort of the longer range picture. What should people be looking out for? What are you looking out for? Certain metrics, certain outcomes this year that will sort of give you a signal on whether actually the two-speed recovery, so to speak, is becoming one. I think, you know, housing does remain first and foremost. I think partly because of its direct impact on commodities demand, but also really its impact on, on confidence. And, you know, I think that was your second question you, you had around what is the confidence returning to the housing sector look like or not look like? You know, and there's the uh, apocryphal saying of confidence comes on foot but leaves on a horse in the sense that it takes a while to rebuild confidence, but it can it can evaporate fairly quickly. And, we, you know, we've seen that where it is taking time for, for confidence in the sector to really come back. Because if you look at it, I mean, the Chinese 
population just like everywhere else. When they went through their COVID lockdowns last year, you know, have accumulated enormous excess savings, something on the order of about $800 billion, you know, and that's an increment that has gone up by about 50% over that last year. You know, so again, comparable to what we've seen in the US or Europe, you know, US was even larger where you went from about $1 trillion to almost $5 trillion of currency in, in bank accounts. And again, so that's what we're seeing. And so there is this question around at some point when confidence returns, does that then transit into pent-up demand being expressed and utilizing these these savings to, to, to really to unleash it. And that's partly, I think, a little bit what we're also seeing, which is the traditional playbook has been to say, let's pump credit into the economy. Here, if you're flush with cash, you don't really need credit, right? So that becomes a question of, you know, what it is, is you need confidence to come back into, into everything else. And part of that is going to be saying, okay, well, once the situation around a lot of these developers is clarified, you know, what's happening with the three red lines, if I buy a home from a developer, are they going to be able to complete it? Are they going to be around to deliver this to me? You know, and if not, then maybe that's why I go ahead and buy an existing home rather than than, than taking a little bit of a chance or maybe a big chance on, on a new project. So I think once that is more established, I think that's where we will start to see this two-speed become more one-speed. But it, it's human nature, so it's, a, it's fickle. So looking out for first primary home buyers. Yeah, I think that's a big one. You know, and, and we've seen, we, you know, to be fair, we have seen price increases start uh, to go positive for the first time in a, in a long time. Um, we have seen foot traffic starting to really to pick up, you know, with people in terms of visiting these new projects. You know, so a few things really starting to look look more positive. But again, you really want to kind of now see that that follow through. And this is really the time where we should start to see that pick up. So everyone's kind of very yeah. focused on all those metrics, I think. The other big story of sort of last year that's present this year is obviously sanctions. And you spoke at the FT Commodity Conference at the summit talking about how essentially, you know, we've had ultimately a big realignment of, of energy flows in particular, but, you know, other key metals as well that were coming out of Russia. So what is the state of play now? Has Have things essentially settled down at ultimately less efficient and more expensive trade routes? Or are we still right in the middle of uncertainty around how these sanctions are actually functioning and playing out? I think it's more the former, but with the risk still out there that we could see more of the latter. As in, you know, the way I talked about it over the last year was really a question of reduction versus redirection. And I think the US in particular was very clear that they wanted a redirection of flows, not really a reduction meaning they didn't want to see barrels or tons come out of the market that could cause prices to move higher. So as a result, then they were saying, well, we, we want to introduce this price cap, but about, you know, below that, then you can allow the EU services ban uh, to not be in place. Because if it were a blanket ban, which is how it had originally been envisioned, that would have absolutely, I think, significantly disrupted, in particular, the global oil market. As it is right now, you've come up with sort of a modus vivendi, right, where you can say, okay, we're, we're in this place where everyone is is living with it. But that's also partly because, you know, Euros has been trading well below the price cap. Now, as prices have moved back upwards, we are getting to a place where perhaps that starts to trade above the price cap in some instances. And then that becomes a new question. I think one other point that people maybe do forget is that this war is not over. It has been on hiatus for a while, really because of weather, you know, winter campaigning not really happening. As we start to move maybe into more summer months, do we start to see a pickup of that again? If it does come back on to maybe if not quite the front pages, but back into a little bit more the public consciousness, in particular in Europe and in particular some of the eastern parts of Europe, which are closer to this conflict, do we start to see another push to say, look, maybe we do need to revisit this in a way that does cause Russia more pain? So. I don't think it's fixed. I think it is a bit of a movable feast and we, we need to see that. But again, there's a lot of other things that could happen as well. You know, in our, our co-head of oil trading, Ben Lockhock was talking about this, uh, the FT Commodity Summit as well, which is to say where we've gone from is, is a place where we're, the, the, this market has been moving towards greater transparency, greater safety, greater clarity around insurance, shipping, everything else. Is there a risk that one of these smaller players has some form of an accident, do we get a spill? In that case, what happens with the insurance? What happens with everything else around that? 
and does again that throw a real spanner in the works of what has so far been a system that has been working so I think we right now are okay and we have to kind of see where we go from here but n now we have seen also Russia saying look we are going to start reducing our volumes and that starts to show up now a little bit in the export data which it hadn't before even though they had said they were so that's true and then you add on to top of that what's happening with the OPEC plus cuts as well. As that market tightens and you will start to become priced higher, again, is there a push to maybe revisit some of that? But for now, I don't think that that's the case. I think right now everyone is very happy and focused on just allowing the barrels to move. And I, this might be a bit of a naive question. So obviously there's been a reorientation of Russia eastwards, which certainly suits China's need for much of this energy, as well as it, some of the, the, met, the critical metals that are coming out of Russia. Is that still very much basically the plan? Or are we actually seeing significant flows? What is the capacity of China to tap into those markets for, in Russia, compared to the West where you've had, as you said, 20 years of development of highly efficient infrastructure to export molecules westward? I think we're depending on the commodity, we're already seeing it happen in, in size. I mean, so far, India, I would say, really has been the key beneficiary of all of this in the sense of it has significantly ramped up its purchases of Russian crude. It's now the biggest buyer by far. And in doing so in a discounted way, that, that greatly helps its, you know, its trade balance and everything else. But China is not far behind in terms of also having stepped up its purchases of, of, of crude. But some things are harder to uh, to change around. So oil, you can move fairly quickly, but gas will take much longer. You know, you've had these pipeline routes that have been built, kind of hardwired hard between Russia and Europe. So to rebuild those, and in particular, you think about how vast Russia is, um, you know, to take that from even West Siberia to into China is is quite an undertaking. So I think that then will take some more time. Uh, we are seeing a little bit on metals as well, and depends on which metal you're looking at. But I think China's policy has been, you know, we want to do this in a way that is not antagonistic, if we can if we can help that, in the sense of we don't want to just say to Russia, fine, we will take absolutely everything you have because we can take it for more cheaply. Because you don't want to really, I think, put the finger in the eye of, of the West too much. And also, I think from China, there is a, a little bit of a wariness to say we don't want to be too dependent also on Russia just for everything. So it's a little bit of a, a, a perhaps a bit more of a cautious approach. There seems to be some form of, of unspoken, unwritten agreement that as long as China is not providing sort of really lethal weaponry to, to Russia, that there's there's a kind of, again, this, this modicum of understanding that, that is there. Okay, you can, you're allowed to continue this relationship, you're allowed to continue taking, you know, the, the materials without really suffering any kind of backlash on this. Talking of, of OPEC, I mean, that has been the big surprise of Q1, where, you know, you have the Biden administration has very clearly set its stall out that it wants to keep oil prices low, that's crucial for a domestic agenda, and have worked very hard toward that. And then suddenly, you know, even with as we talk about sanctions, right, the, the oil is still flowing. Suddenly you have this decision from, from OPEC, which was a surprise. Can you just help us understand, has that has that signaled a dramatic shift in policy? How much of a surprise was it? And what do you think the long-term ramifications of that will be? I think it's not really a change in policy. I think OPEC Plus for the last few years has really been aiming to preserve what it views as a a stable or balanced market. And, you know, we've seen that where it's, it, it hasn't wanted prices too high, but it also at $70 or even $60 for WTI, you know, those are levels that don't work for, for the members of the group. And I think they have tried to be proactive, preemptive in trying to balance this market. I think they took a lot of heat for the decision last year to announce a cut, but given the, the kind of slowdown in demand and given the, the SPR releases or what's happening in China with COVID, the non-disruption, shall we say, coming out of Russia, uh, you know, that proved to probably be the right move if you were looking to balance the market, right? Consuming countries are always going to want a lower price, no matter what the price is. Uh, that's in their best interest. But you do also need to look at then what works for the producers as well. 
And it's not just the OPEC plus producers, because one of the comments we've had is that, you know, if prices do fall too low, what is already happening in the U.S. shale sector would just simply get exacerbated. And what is happening there is we are not seeing the levels of CapEx, in particular new, I would say, production CapEx, meaning not CapEx is simply going into making it for higher for higher costs in a sense, inflation CapEx, you know, is not really happening. And then kind of my shorthand on this has been the guys who weren't drilling at 100 to 120 are definitely not drilling at 60 to 80. You know, so there is a sweet spot somewhere in there that then says, okay, this market balances. It's a probably a bit higher price than people would like to pay, but it does incentivize new supply growth to come on in the future. Otherwise, you run the risk of having underinvested so severely that you end up with some serious spikes down the road. I want to talk about shale. What is the sense of what number works for OPEC Plus? I mean, what are, do we have any sense of their target? I don't know if we have a sense of their target, but if we just look at what their actions have been, you know, they have tended to act when prices have gone substantially below $80 and, and likely to stay there for some time. You know, and each country has its own metrics. But I, I would say, again, just looking purely at, at what they have done rather than what they've said, that seems to be an area where they feel we, we'd like to see prices above that. And again, not probably not surprising. And also not surprising, perhaps, given where the longer term agenda for some of these countries is, right? It's to say, look, we do want to transition away from oil production. We do want to move into other areas, be it, you know, metals production in Saudi or whether it is into more clean energy, whether, whatever else it may be. If we look at the UAE, for example, you know, so these, these are other areas that they want to invest in. And they're saying, well, we need capital to do that. And therefore we need a higher price to be able to, to do that or invest in, you know, Neom or, or whatever else it may be. So for them, they're saying, look, this is, this is in a sense, you know, what any producers would do. You know, you have companies around the world that always will try and maximize their profit margins. And, you know, who are we to, to be doing anything different? And then turning to shale, we had Adam Rosenzweig on a, a, a few episodes ago, and, and he spoke about you know even the Permian essentially production coming off just as a result of you know the the, the available discoverable resources there and the technologies being deployed. So is I mean how can you tease apart what is sort of the economics of shale versus the actual underlying geology and whether you know that is becoming a bit of an exhausted play? So I think globally, for most resources, I would say. This is not really a matter, you know, we used to talk a lot in the 2000s, in particular in oil, but about peak supply, you know, and then it's become more fashionable to talk about peak demand. For me, what we really have been talking about is peak deliverability, right? And what do I mean by that? That at a price, there is enough resource in the ground, but whether that price is significantly higher from here, you know, whether it's $100, $200, whatever it may be for people to say, well, resources that we considered uneconomic are now economic because there is there are enough barrels, in a sense, in the ground, right? And you can see that in the U.S. as well. But what we're seeing now is that, okay, for a couple of things. So number one is that the break-even costs have risen, and they used to be probably around $55 and are now likely somewhere in the $65 to maybe $70 range. And a lot of that is is labor costs have gone up, materials costs have gone up. You know, you, you look at the service companies, the big three service companies are down in terms of their employees, anywhere between a third and 50%, you know, where they were in 2014. So just by their nature, they're going to be, it's going to be more expensive to do this. On top of that, you had a lot of drilling of the sweet spots in 2020. You know, your production per rig added in the Permian went from, 800, 900, up to 1,600 barrels added per rig. And that has now fallen back to just about 900 again. So, you you know, you, you really have, in a sense, eaten through that, that that sweet spot. And that sweet spot really isn't about it being necessarily more productive as much as perhaps, you know, a lower break-even, right? So something that maybe was a $20 break-even. But that resource is now exhausted because of the unique nature of shale. I would say, you know, shale... Oil production is, is like cracking eggs, right? Is in, you, you, know, you get all of it really in almost in one go. And you can maybe take it out a little bit more slowly, you know, extend the life of it a bit. But once the egg's cracked, it's gone, right? And the more you're cracking now, the more you then need to crack next year just to keep pace. And I think that's what we've had, right? Is that in a sense, it, it's almost collapsing under its own weight to say, well, if we're producing, you know, five, six million barrels a day, but we're losing 50 to 60% of that, every year, then obviously the number that we then have to drill 
just to stay flat goes up quite significantly. I think there's also limits around, you know, well, who is deploying the CapEx? So what we've seen is this big shift, you know, away from the majors and super majors really being the the key drivers of CapEx to a lot of it being the the private players, the family-owned players, the private equity-backed guys, you know, who who do have limits on how much land they hold, right? So you can't run a lateral indefinitely then, and you can't get all of the um, kind of economies of scale from that. You can only run it to as far as you have that plot, right? And, you know, we always say is, okay, if you're a small player, then when prices wobble a bit, you're going to drill what you've got. Whereas if you're a big player, maybe like a Conoco or a Chevron or Exxon, you know, you can take a more of a portfolio effect, you know, and say, okay, well, I'll drill this stuff now, but keep some of the, the really good stuff for later and, and manage it a little bit. But given the, the preponderance of these smaller players, it becomes hard to do that. So that's where we've seen, I think, some degrading of that. And I think the other big thing is that's changed even in the last year has been cost of capital, right? So if you look at the U.S. two-year rate, um, you know, we were at 1.5% this time last year. Okay, we're down a bit now, but we got to over 5% at one point, right? And so if you're a shale player, your cost of capital has gone up, you know, much higher than that even. So suddenly your returns than you require are, again, that much higher. And what a lot of companies are finding, and we've talked a lot about this, and I think we've talked about it even on the, the previous podcast that we've done, has been this prioritizing of shareholder returns. And you're saying, look, the best investment I can do in many of these cases for some of these companies is to buy back my own shares, is not to go out and drill more. And in fact, there's many times where I will get paid more for the barrels I don't produce, because if I'm not producing that, then in a sense, I'm just helping tighten the market that is raising the price. And that's what we've seen. 2021, we saw Exxon pay more in, in dividends than it did spend on CapEx, right? Uh, again, the buyback numbers for these companies are, are you know, quite enormous. So that's really where the priority, priority has been. And even when they're growing, you know, they're looking to grow more through M&A than they are to do new drilling. And, you know, we're seeing rumors or reports of Exxon maybe looking to buy Pioneer. But again, that's just buying an existing production base rather than saying we're going to go and deploy a new set of rigs, do a bunch of new drilling. Yeah, I want to move on to interest rates and I want to talk specifically about that financial engineering you mentioned there. In sort of layman terms, though, when we look at shale, you're saying there's plenty more eggs to crack. It's just obviously they're not going to be at the sweet spot and you've got these constraints around the current drillers in terms of access to those those eggs. Mm -hmm. But there's no sense at the moment that shale, shale is coming to the end of its, or at least US, Texas-based shale is coming to the end of its life and it's getting really to the point of exhaustion. I wouldn't say exhaustion, but I would say that what we heard very interestingly, um, in particular at the Sierra Week conference in, in Houston in March, was you know a number of the key players who are much closer, I would say, to the, the kind of shale patch, really starting to talk about at least the peak in, in U.S. shale production and it being not too far off. Now, again, in a sense, if by getting to that peak, we then see higher prices, is there another shift that comes? And I mean, even the, the shale sector as a whole really came about because you know, it wasn't that we didn't know about the resource. It wasn't that we didn't know about the technology. It was just that prices had to go above $100, which they did in 2011, and stay there for a long period of time. You know, so in 2011 to 14, when we were above that $100 threshold, that's when a lot of this resource became economic. And then technology gains on top of that allowed you to, to sustain that. So it may be that we are, whether it's a local peak or a permanent peak, will be open to discussion. But if some of the biggest players, which was, you know, it was Conoco, it was Pioneer, it was these guys who were saying that, you know, look, we think this year shale growth probably disappoints. You know, maybe it's 400,000, but that was back in March. Now it may be even lower than that. But then going forward, who is going to really invest in a massive new CapEx program to go out and, and, and drill this stuff? And what we have heard even is, you know, even outside kind of core Permian, so even within the Permian, but outside the core core, is that people are really are cutting back. So it's not that the resource isn't there, it's the what is the new incentive price to really to make that work, right? Mm. And there is a structural problem when this is, you know, you could talk about it in metals or in oil or whatever else, but not, it's not just, it's no longer just about the rock, right? But it is about, do you have the service capacity, you know, or do you have enough new graduates, new people entering the field to be able to replenish this workforce? 
And I think that's a problem that we've talked about for quite some time. A lot of your listeners will be much closer to that. And I think, you know, I will, but it feels like, you know, how many people are really going into petroleum engineering or geology, you know, and, and things of that nature that say, okay, in five years, are we going to still be growing at the same rate? Are we going to be able to do that? Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not attracting many young graduates into offshore oil, you know, rig management, for example, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, exactly. Uh, it's, it's tough. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. The, so interest rates. So we, we had Edward Chancellor on talking about specifically about financial engineering, right? The fact that the cost of borrowing was less than the internal cost of capital. And you just borrow a bunch of money and buy a bunch of shares and you know mm-hmm. everything looks fantastic. The, the It has been a dramatic shift, you know, 450 basis points or whatever it's been over the last year. That has threaded its way through now the commodities world with profound impacts. How has that impacted commodity trading? How has that impacted your ability to even to look at things like inventories and say, well, they, are they being drawn down because of demand or are they being drawn down because no one can afford to actually inventory these commodities anymore? Can you just help us understand sort of how that has threaded its way through the sector, not only rising costs, but also impacting the efficiency of trade itself? Absolutely. So I think for the commodity trading houses, uh, you know, and we've talked about this publicly at, at some length, but I think it depends really on the size and scale that you have, you know, for just speaking for ourselves, we've invested significant amount of resources, time to build relationships with as many different banks as we can. You know, we have about 140 different partner banks that we work with. So when we've had sort of a tightening of credit into the sector in general, I think, you know, it's helped to have that scale and have those, have those relationships. Whereas you can see some of the smaller players have struggled a little bit with, with this. You know, and not just interest rates, but overall the ability to tap into financing and, and, and to credit lines. So I think that becomes a, a key issue as we go forward. And in particular, as you have gotten some banks who are questioning, okay, well, what's the trade off here? What's the risk reward here for us? So I think there's that. But I think writ large across the economy, you know, when we just have been looking at this the last few days, it does seem that the credit crunch is very much underway that what the Fed has been trying to engineer, it is succeeding in doing, which is to withdraw liquidity out of the economy, to slow the circulation of credit down, to slow, you know, to tighten lending, and by doing so, create less demand, create less investment, and to cool things off such that inflation comes down to a more normal, manageable level. So I think that is happening, and that we think is going to start to, to show up in some of the demand numbers as well. But also going back to your point around uh, inventory financing and things like that, I think you've seen that, you know, particularly in places even in, in, in China as well, where the plays that the people were doing there, you can't do anymore just because they're not they're not open to you, they're not they're not available to do that. So I think it is having a, a, a an impact. I don't know if that is the primary cause by any means from what we're seeing in terms of the the inventory drawdowns, because we do think demand may not be perhaps quite as strong as people thought, but is running certainly at levels that is requiring physical material out of inventories, out of tank, out of warehouses, into the consuming centers. But is it having an impact maybe at the margin? I would say it's probably, you know, uh, I'd say quite possibly. Now, one thing is that, again, if, you know, not, not to belabor the point, but I think the fact is that if we are seeing demand start to slow down, maybe because if we do head into a, a slowdown or recession, whatever you want to call it, because of higher rates, yes, there's a demand impact. But I think unlike very much, not just 2008, 2008 in particular, but also more broadly, most recessions, we have a safety cushion that we've never had, a safety buffer in the form of people's excess savings, of companies' savings, cash piles, people having locked in extraordinarily low levels of debt, 
And so, you know, the, in, in a way, you're much better prepared than you've ever been. So perhaps the demand hit is short-lived. But on the flip side, we're going to see an even bigger hit to the investment than we have been seeing already. And that leads you to what I would say is probably some very significant, you know, we, again, we've, we've talked a lot about these underinvestment issues. And I think this will just, again, turbocharge some of those. Uh, such that, you know, just we're talking about the U.S. shale patch. Again, imagine we do see a hit to demand, maybe prices drop back down in the 60s, maybe even lower for a little bit. All the people who are, you know, maybe planning on ramping up CapEx in the second half of this year don't. And let's say you come out of this next year, demand starts to recover, and we don't have the U.S. Um, you know, really shale patch growing very, very much. Help me understand this. So Jeff Curry's point at the FT was, you know, essentially the story of commodities is essentially the same as the capex cycle, and as interest rates go up, money comes out of financial system and into the the real world assets in order to drive shorter term returns. Are we not going to see in a period of sustained higher interest rates some of that investment returning to these these issues that are generating the supply side constraints that we're facing? Like, in other words, rather than share buybacks, we're going to start seeing Exxon, Conoco, these these companies start to look to drill more because that's where the shorter term returns are. I think some of them we're seeing a little bit of it. So Chevron in particular saying, look, we want to ramp up production. So that's true, I would say, production capex and not inflation capex. But otherwise, we're not, I think, seeing it in in scale. You know, Exxon is is fairly focused on Guyana and its and its project there. So you know, they're saying, okay, that's going to be incremental production. But are they investing a lot of new capex? They're probably not. You know, just expanding that. But in particular, you know, on the exploration side, are we seeing companies really go out? You know, you mentioned deep water West Africa, right? If you look at where Angola is and it's a decades low of production, is anyone really starting a new deep water offshore project there? And it doesn't seem like it. And again, not for a lack of resources, but really for a, how do we get this approved? How do we, you know, what's the return on this going to be? I mean, I, I agree, I think with Jeff in the sense that, yes, at some point you're going to say, look, where's the return? And if high interest rates have driven equities more generally down, if they have said, okay, you know, we've driven rates down as well, what is interesting out there? And yes, you know, there's a real ask for, for, for real assets. But again, it may not come until we've had a little bit more of a, a slowdown, things have reset lower, and then people really kind of start to get their heads around um, what is happening on, on, on the inventory situation, on the underinvestment situation. So my shorthand on this really has been this is a race really between slowdown and stocks, right? Because yes, if it looks like we're we're heading towards a slowdown, but we are incredibly low on stocks and many, many things. You know, if you look at gasoline stocks for this time of year, we're very low seasonally, continue to draw. But copper, we should be somewhere around four or five weeks normally of, of use. And we're down to a few days, similar for many of the other commodities under at least the metal side, right? So zinc and, and, and lead and a few others. So this is this is a problem, right? And so for me, you know, I think we would broadly agree on the overall outlook for, for, for the sector, which is you may get a bit of a hiccup. Who knows when that is, what, what happens there. But all it does is tee up these issues more so going forward. And I think, again, I, I said this on the, the podcast that we all had. We're talking really about moving from, from commodity cycles to commodity spikes mm. in the future, possibly. Yeah, as the commodity industry doesn't have those same buffers that households do, you know, in in terms of savings, right? The, the exactly. You can shop. create more credit, but you can't create more barrels. You can't yeah. create more tons. And we're going to put a pin in oil and in copper because I think that there's sort of a, a fascinating story. We look out, you know, the shocks that could come and you could have those real severe price spikes, which I know you've spoken to. Just before we move to there, can we just the energy transition, right? And this plays into interest rates as well. Like how long, you know, how willing are people to invest in thirty-year unproven technologies, you know, in a, a higher interest rate environment? And and we're in a world of of energy security concerns now, as in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's it's very difficult to make bets in energy transition. Obviously, Trafigur itself is is leaning heavily into it. What's your take on how that's going to play out this year? Are we seeing the same levels of investment going into all forms of low carbon power production? Are there some safer areas that you know 
that Trafigura feels comfortable working, leaning into. Can you just give us, I guess, your take on that? I think this is an area that where the train has decisively left the station. And we saw this even during COVID where, you know, investment in this space was in a sense ring-fenced, where governments are increasingly saying, this is not a nice to have, this is a must have now. And people have slightly different rationales for that, perhaps, you know, some people who are absolutely committed on the climate change front, others who are viewing it a little bit maybe as a, as a competitive edge, you know, way to boost value-added growth. But by and large, I mean, we, we are seeing this continue. And in particular, I would say the U.S. and China, when you look at the, the rate of build-out, so I think wind this year in China is a little bit more lagging, but solar is, is actually significantly higher than I think what people would have imagined uh, you know, or forecast for this year. And for the U.S., I think the Inflation Reduction Act really, really has been a game changer for a lot of this. Um, and you're seeing projects where perhaps maybe we're on the margin a little bit, really now coming into the fore. And whether that is in hydrogen, biofuels, you know, renewable power, almost whatever it is, you know, that the, the force of this legislation, I think, is just starting to make itself felt. You know, and going back to the, the, the Zero Week conference, that really was what everyone was talking about. Yes, there was obviously a lot of discussion around you know, Russia sanctions and price cap and China recovery, but almost everyone really, the thing that they were talking about was, was the Inflation Reduction Act and kind of the impact that that is having. And over time, you know, what is Europe's response to that? They've taken a few initiatives, but they haven't really allocated new funding to that. They had been doing a lot already. I was even before the IRA came out. You know, but once they put in place the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, what does that do in terms of people then having to uh, to adjust to that? So I think this for us, and this is not us just talking our book, you know, this is what you can see happening in the market, is that this is not just real, but it's it's real, it's happening now, it's not in some future time, and that the momentum is very, very much there to stay. I guess from a, a traffic guru perspective, there's, there's the two elements that's, that play well into your portfolio, right? One is, of course, we're moving from a sort of liquid and gaseous form of generating power to really solid state technologies, right? Whether it's wind or solar or you know the batteries that solve for intermittency and storage and so forth. There's the crucial metals that flow into that. The other is, of course, power. And you know everything ultimately ends up in electricity in the in the mm-hmm. energy transition. Is that the right way of thinking about it? And how crucial is power to to the the, the vision of of the future of a traffic era? No, no, I think it's absolutely critical. You know, so we we went from really what we were saying is probably a two pillar model, kind of oil and gas and metals and minerals, to very much a, a three pillar now, right? Where so it's it's really it's oil, um, metals, and then gas power, LNG, carbon, renewables is, is sort of really one big area. You're some, you know, some of your listeners may know, you know, we made changes to the management committee appointed somebody to really to run that division. So, you know, taking real action around that, including then a lot of investments across that value chain, we've created a fund to find and invest in hydrogen projects. We've been uh, effectively ordering ships that will run on these new forms of, of, of fuel and ammonia and everything else in a bit to try and decarbonize the shipping sector. So for us, this is you know, really, again, putting our money where our mouth is and, and you know, investing quite heavily in, in, in doing this and shaping the company to be able to, to, to do that. You know, for us, it's really a question of where can we add value? Where is there a competitive edge you know, really for us rather than just entering a, a, a new sector that perhaps we don't really bring a value in? But, you know, hydrogen, for example, it needs to be produced, transported, stored, delivered, consumed, which all of which sounds like a traditional commodity in, in large part. So, you know, that's an area where we say, OK, well, maybe that's an area where we, we could have something uh, to add as opposed to maybe some of the other areas where maybe we have something less. Mm. OK, so thanks for that. And it's, it's been fascinating to watch that play out as all of the, the global commodity trading houses are having to uh, yeah, adjust to both an energy transition, but also solving challenges in real time in the wake of sanctions and disruptive supply chains and a, arguably a decoupling world as well. But that's a bigger conversation. So as we as we kind of look forward, you've already alluded to this idea that we kind of could potentially, ultimately in the wake of energy transition and 
other factors like deglobalization, be moving from a world of a, a typical efficient market operating in a cycle as investment in supply catches up with demand, etc., to a world of of spikes, of volatility, of greater uncertainty. Can you help us understand through that lens, say, the oil market over the next year, 24 months, and how how that could play out? I mean, what are what are the events that could cause such shocks and volatility, and 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 why everything now is you know such small events can have huge ramifications because of such a a tight um, supply constrained world we now sit in. So I think if the starting point and and this I mean the question is really about oil, but it costs so many of these things where we just don't have the buffers we used to in terms of inventories or the spare capacity to be able to bring online. So it used to be that OPEC, you know, for example, would have sufficient spare capacity, maybe up to three, four million barrels a day that they could then deploy if there were outages in, in key members. You know, and, and one of the things I keep saying this year is regardless perhaps of what's happening on the macro front, I can't think of a year when we have not had a serious geopolitical disruption in, in oil markets. It's kind of one of the defining features of the market. And so, you know, at some point, could we see something like that? You know, we're seeing it now with Iraq and Turkey, which fine, maybe seems to be resolved, or perhaps it, it flares up again. You know, when something happens in Libya, uh, in Nigeria, in Kazakhstan, wherever it may be. You know, the, these are the risks that, it, that exist in the market. And you just don't have the fallback capacity to then say, you know, we, we can easily make that up. Now, a little bit, it does depend on where, where the disruption is. But, you know, we, we not too long ago had a major outage in Saudi with the upkick attacks, right? And, you know, that was pre-COVID, so I think a lot of people have forgotten about it. But, you know, that was a major disruption. If that happened today, we do not have any ability to kind of absorb that buffer. At that point, you know, Saudi was able to make up a lot of it from, from its inventories uh, and to keep the barrels flowing. And globally, you know, we were in a much better supplied place. But that isn't the case today. And the other part of it is, again, if we look at what's happened with the, the SPR releases, not just in the U.S., which are obviously the biggest, but even in Europe, where we saw a lot of the product SPR releases and things like that. And France now is even lower, given the, the stocks it's had to release because of the refinery outages there. So this is the thing that we we don't really know. And I, you know, to use Donald Rumsfeld's kind of infamous framework, right? I think with the oil market, it's, it's both known unknowns and unknown unknowns, right? So yeah. we kind of know that there is going to be some form of a disruption. We just don't know what, what it is. And that's the known unknowns. And then there could be just the complete unknown unknowns, which, you know, may, may still sneak up on us. And it's really, to me, it's the fact that you're unable to deploy. It's not just crude. It's not just the traditional OPEC spare capacity as well. A lot of it is the refining capacity, right? If we looked at how hard the system was running last year in terms of, in particular in the U.S., we were running 97, 98% in, on the East Coast at many points, right? And what saved maybe product markets last year wasn't even the SPR releases, maybe as much as the fact that China's COVID lockdowns meant it didn't consume very much. In fact, it, oil demand was down by a million barrels a day over the year, and that it was unable to then export a lot of its products and help alleviate tightness elsewhere. You know, if we don't have that this year, let's say the Fed doesn't drive you into a recession, doesn't have the kind of the impact that maybe it, it might, do you find yourself in a place where Chinese jet demand is, international travel is really starting to pick up? Globally, summer, you know, we're heading into travel season, and and we just find ourselves very short. So I think I think there's there's real risks, you know, all 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 up and down that, you know, we are still out there. And like I said, maybe we don't see some of those come to fruition this year, but the risks I think just kind of continue to build up over time. Oh, and last point I should say is, you know, we didn't really have a, a real hurricane season last year. Maybe we see something on that front this year that then again is much more disruptive. Yeah. Hope not, given where I'm sat. But it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because it's it's not just obviously the, the events, right? And some of those could be weather events. Some of those could be sort of local um, geopolitical events, you know, conflicts or whatever it might be. And you know, Iran is something that keeps bubbling up. You know, if if they actually have announced a, a nuclear weapons program or capability, you know, what would that do? It's fascinating because the world is, in some ways, yes, there's always events, but in some ways, you're now much more exposed to well the world is so much more uncertain and if i think back 10 years ago it was probably a little bit boring being a geopolitical consultant and now you're in in super high demand what does that mean for for like you and your team of 
Have you had to strengthen capabilities, intelligence capabilities, to understand what's going on, not only kind of in the, the geopolitical level, but also then the overlaid policy level as well? I mean, there must be incredible demands on you and your team to sort of try and divine possible outcomes, even in the next two months, let alone what might be happening in two years. No, absolutely. And I think we, you know, we can see that at, at Trafigura, I, I, you know, one of the things I always rate the company for is is the investment and the resources that have been put towards research and analytics. Um, you know, when I joined, we really didn't have very much of a team. And that team has grown to something, I think, like 50 something analysts across all the different areas that we that we cover now that we trade. And not just that, but alongside that effort, we've also invested significant amounts in building out a data science and advanced analytics capability so to really, again, try and capture some of the more real-time data sets, some of the more unique data sets that are out there to take advantage of the larger computing power that we, that we have access to now. And, and to really try and come up with better decisions in the real-time framework. But then on the other side, as you say, with the policy, the, the geopolitics of it, it's interesting because I think we and our peers have probably now started to play a very different role to where we would have back when, at least when I started in the industry, where I think we are looked at as partners in this. We, you know, we do engage very frequently with the administration in the U.S., in Europe, and elsewhere, not to try and shape policy, but to try and help people understand, you know, here's some of the key issues. Here's just from where we're sitting, how, how things may look. You know, so even discussions around price caps and things like that, how would that look in practice? What does that actually mean? You know, what point does that apply? These are all things that where we can bring in our knowledge and our engagement on. And so that has, I think, clearly been, been, a, been a step change up on, on that. And as you say, you know, kind of then adding to the resources around that and trying to say. And, and now I think as we move more and more towards, you know, what we touched on a lot on, on the energy transition, on the move towards new forms of energy, new, you know, new metals, everything else, really trying to help understand that from our perspective. So new research capabilities around that, new traders, right? So we're bringing in people who will trade things that we have not traded before and then build capacity around that. So for us, it's a really exciting time to be able to bring a lot of those the, those people in. And, and to be frank, you know, where you say, look, for a lot of people who may be a more younger generation coming out saying, look, maybe we're not as interested in traditional oil, but we are very interested in, again, helping the world deliver on its needs for energy, whatever form that may take. Well, okay, well then, you know, we're looking to say, well, maybe we have something around that that that, that is attractive. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, is it? Because again, that that points to this need for scale, right? You know, and you, we've seen that. We speak about it a lot in our sort of market reviews and the talent impacts. You've essentially gone from a world of, you know, 20 years ago, 20 trading houses down to really a handful of very big ones because of, as you said, we talked about interest rates earlier, the need, the scale of financing needed, but also now the the scale at which, you know, the, the size that you need, because you do need to have the capacity to understand what's going on in all parts of the world, and also the the ability to interact, you know, with government relations and so on, because that's so crucial to, to the trading world. And yet, you've kind of got this other factor coming in, which is in some ways, the world is also shrinking right for western companies in in the sense of sanctions and a sort of polarization you know a, a china east and a, a a us west the ability to operate globally and freely like trading houses did 10 years ago that that landscape has changed as well though hasn't it i think so but i think also the kind of the core calling card you know there are the raison d'etre for trading companies like ourselves you know for physical traders is to address dislocations in, in markets, right? Disconnects in markets. You know, if if it were simply you have a producer on one end and a consumer on the other, and they were able to just move things easily between them, and they knew how to do it, and you knew how to to cover that, you perhaps wouldn't have the need for the for the trading companies. But as you say, as the world is becoming increasingly interconnected, but also dividing up a little bit into the different regimes of of how you can do things. You know, and if we look forward today, find it's it sanctions and, you know, whether it's Iran, Venezuela, Russia, price cap, whatever else it may be. But in the future, it's going to also be carbon, right? How much carbon is in this? Where is it sourced from? Has it responsibility source? You know, all those kinds of things as well. So just as you, you say, well, what's the assay of this, uh, of this product? It may also be, what is the carbon footprint of this product? You know, and these, these are core competencies that we and our peers have built over time to be able to assess those, ascertain those, guarantee those and and then be able to deliver against those. 
Um, and so I think to me, that's really where, again, the need for that will just continue to, to increase. So it's no longer just a question of price or quantity or quality, but also, again, the provenance of the, or, the origin, everything else. Yeah, fascinating. I guess I want to give final, final, it's been a really interesting conversation. I wish we could go on for another hour, but I, I want to give final comment to Copper because, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen a more bullish panel at the FT, even to the point where I sneakily bought some, some Copper ETFs, thinking it might, uh, it, the price might pop. But, you know, we, we've spoken about oil, but and you, you, you've mentioned throughout the discussion you know, that, that Copper has no buffer. This idea that it is the critical metal for the energy transition uh, just to, can you just give us a couple of words on you know are, are you as bullish on copper as your peers and colleagues who's, who spoke about it? I think structurally yes. I think it's hard to be anything but that. If you look at it, you know, there's no energy transition without copper, right? It's because it goes into the wiring, the electrical grid that we will need. It will go into the generation itself from the solar panels, from the wind turbines. It will go into the consumption on the EV side. And the fact that it doesn't really have an easy substitute, um, and the one that is closest with aluminium is going through its own deficit, right? It's the fact that the supply side is constrained over the next while. Yes, this year, you know, there is, there is supposedly going to be more mine supply coming on, but again, you're running into a bit of a smelter bottleneck. So, the, we are again, we're so underinvested in this. And unlike maybe in oil, you don't have the shale equivalent, meaning you can just simply turn it on or even within six months, but you just don't have that capacity to do that. You have a little bit on the scrap side, but not enough to really to make this up on a, on a structural basis. I think, you know, where what has been mystifying in a bit uh, on copper has been if you look at it last year, where stocks were when the price hit its all time high of 10,700, and then they declined steadily throughout the whole year to the point where they had gotten down to the levels we were talking about. And yet the price had gone down to 6,700. And that's not how commodity markets should work, right? Is if you're drawing stocks and you're drawing them down to such low levels, you know, the price should be reacting to that. But this has primarily almost overwhelmingly been a macro versus micro. And this has been, you know, the, the thing that best explains the copper price last year is really the euro. If you, if you map the, you know, copper price in euro, it, they're they're very tightly correlated because people really were worried about these macro headwinds, worried about China demand, worried about Europe entering an industrial depression. So they've been playing that. And given what we've talked about, you know, concerns around the Fed, potential worries about a global slowdown, that's why, you know, it's still not really reflecting the tight fundamentals in particular time when we're drawing. So there may be some some period again where prices may, may chop around a bit. But for us looking at this, there's no way to really get around the, the dynamics that are driving this market. Price forecasting is always difficult because of however many intervening factors there are. You know, so it's almost harder to do the next two months than it is maybe the next two years. But when you look at those next two years, you go, this is this is a metal that really only has one way to go. Yeah, Chile, Peru, I mean, the, the, those countries, the major producers are having their own internal challenges as well, right? So, I mean, it seems like that story could be really exacerbated as some producers' production is way down as well. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, you'll see that, that as, you know, in a sense, if the price does start to move up to incentivize new production, everyone is going to want a bigger piece of a bigger pie, where you will have labor unions at the mines, you will have local communities, state-level governments, national governments, service companies, everyone saying, okay, well, you know, we, we want a bit more of this. And that may actually slow to, or serve to slow some of this investment down as well. And, you know, we're seeing that is in a sense that now, you know, the, the average copper project is about 30% smaller than it used to be. It costs 40% more and it takes 50% longer to bring on. So when you have that, you know, it's, it's, again, it becomes very, very challenging in particular for a metal that is going to be absolutely necessary. You can argue about peak demand for oil, whether it is, you know, earlier or sort of towards the end of this decade. 2030, maybe a bit beyond that or wherever it may be. But no one is arguing about peak demand for copper. In fact, if anything, the opposite. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a great insight on the market and also an interesting window into, into Trafigura as one of the key players in this world views on things as well. So thank you very much. And I hope we can have you again in a, in a year or so and, and get an update because you know it's a fast-moving market. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.